Uh, we will go on then for the next question to Arman. Thank you. Hi, Tom. Hi, Arman. Uh, my question is about uh, out-of-body experiences. Uh, it seems that my out-of-body experiences are in some borderland between lucid dreaming and out-of-body. Uh, I usually uh, have the experiences in the mornings uh, and my body relaxes and I feel the vibrations and then I shifted uh, data stream. And the last last time I did it, I uh, want to do a, a experiment. So I uh, uh, got out of the apartment and uh, saw a large uh, truck outside and uh, and I saw it uh, drive kind of strange, uh, and it was very blurry and foggy, but I had the intention to see more clearly. Uh, so the, the, um, it got more clear, and uh, uh, the, how do you call it, a resol resolution got sharper uh, and better. But when, when I came near the truck, I wanted to uh, uh, read the uh, registrations plate, but the numbers uh, got... Uh, like thrown around and disappeared. Uh, so it was very strange because it, it didn't feel like a, a dream at all. Uh, but it maybe was because, yeah, it was uh, strange things happening. But, but, I, but I tried something else. I uh, uh, wanted to uh, go where my partner was because she was going to work. So I wanted to see her path to work. Uh, so I tried that, but I just came somewhere else. It was it was like uh, our neighborhood, but fifty uh, percent not. It was kind of hard to explain, but it was it was uh, somewhere else. I, I was, I think. So my question is, if I can do things differently to have more clearer out of body experiences and. Yeah, do more experiments uh, because it's kind of difficult doing them now because I don't know, maybe it's lucid dreaming. Uh, well, yeah, that's my question. Okay. I think in the things that you're trying to do that are evidential, you may be getting the horse in front of the cart a little bit there. First, just have your out of bodies and do whatever you do until that becomes a real solid, clear, stable thing. Okay, once you get that as a stable mindset, then doing these evidential things would be the next step. But I think the problem you're having is that you are getting in an out-of-body state, but it's not real stable. It's not a real strong, stable state. And sometimes your intellect will jump in and, and, you know, say something like when you get to that license plate and you suddenly the numbers are all jumbled. Well, there's probably a thought in your mind of, I wonder if I can read that license plate or I'd like to read that license plate, but I don't know if I can. You say, well, that is an intellectual thought. And when that thought passes through your mind, you'll look at that plate and all everything will be jumbled. Okay, and that's because of that thought. Or if, if, if tracing your partner and, and where their path were, was, 
if you have a thought, well, I'm going to try to do this. I don't know whether I can or not, but I'm going to give that a try. That would be interesting. You say, but that's your intellect. And your intellect then messes it up. So your state isn't as stable as it needs to be because you need to be able to use your intuitive level intention to do those things like read license plates, follow your partner's you know, path to work. You need to be able to have those directional thoughts of what it is you want to do without getting into your intellect. They have to come out of your intuition, not really an intellectual space. If it's an intellectual space, that will interfere. So you can use your, your thinking in an intuitive space that doesn't interfere, but if you use it in an intellectual space, it does. So I don't think you have a, a solid enough grip on that out-of-body space to be able to be doing those evidential things and having them work all the time. Now, no doubt you can do evidential things that will work some of the time because some of the time you are in the intuitive space. You see, those times that you just happen to stay in that intuitive space, that being level space, then everything works out great. And you can do those things. You can read license plates. You can follow things. But sometimes you, your intellect drops in or you you know, get a piece of that and of that intellectual thinking, and that messes it up. You have to do all of this from in the from an intuitive being level space. And until that gets really, really solid, you'll find that the evidential stuff sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. That's because your state isn't solid enough. You know, sometimes the intellect jumps in and sometimes it doesn't. So that's probably why you're getting sometimes you have problems, other times you don't. The inconsistency is just there because the, the solidity of that particular altered state that you're in, you know, that being level state comes and goes. It waxes and wanes. So I say solve the problem is just keep practicing. The more you do it, the better it'll get. The more you do it, the less you'll jump back into the intellect. It'll just get better and better but it's not necessarily a, a quick process. So if you have that trouble that, that uh, like you couldn't see your, your partner's path, a good thing to do would be to, to kind of start over, go back to the beginning and start over, back into the right state, back into the outer body. All right, now I'm there. All right, now I want to see my partner's path. You see, now, if your partner already is gone by then and you say, oh, well, I missed it. Well, no, you can still see her path. You can still trace that path, you know, through the past. It doesn't have to be through the present. So you can still trace that path and then ask her, which way did you go to work? You know, if you're looking for, for evidence, so you can still do that. So don't feel that, well, I got to go do that now because just the fact that you're in a hurry will make the state less stable. Because being in a hurry is an intellectual thing, not a being level thing. You see, so it's just just the stability of your state and what you're doing now is very typical. You know, I went through that too, where where in, initially the states weren't all that stable. Things would work and things wouldn't work. 
they didn't, you know, it wasn't always solid and stable, but that'll come with, with time and more experience. Uh, great. Thank you. Um, and, uh, I got my second question. It's somewhat related, I think, to the first one, but I don't know. Um, uh, I was in a, I was dreaming, but suddenly the dream was more clearly. And uh, I found myself uh, outside a house and uh, the store line was slow and steady, almost like hearing PMR. And I was greeted by a family and had a notion that I had a, uh, a task to do there or, or give them some kind of important uh, information. So I went into the house and then I got the feeling that uh, someone wanted to hurt his family so i got um, feelings of uh, that someone planned planned to murder this this family so when i was at the dinner table with his family i told them about my notion uh, no actually i did, did later just before i uh, talked to them to get more security in the house and stuff like that and just kind of wanted to give them my concern. But as I talked to them, it felt like the, the message wasn't, uh, uh, how do you say, la landed, or they, they didn't, I, I couldn't uh, come through with my message. So I, I uh, told them that someone was maybe perhaps after them and they should take care of them themselves. And just to demonstrate my, my, my uh, a sensation I levitated the glass in front of them and told them about my intuition it is it's my feeling that you just should be safe and watch out then I, I went from the house and uh, talked to their neighbor uh, because I was worried and then I left from left the house and uh, went somewhere else and was almost in a body state and and tried to experiment uh, but, but was thrown back to the house uh, a little bit later. And when I went up to the house, uh, the family wasn't there. Uh, there was a man standing there. And I got the feeling that it was the person who who uh, took them out. Uh, yeah, um, killed them. So it was, and I woke up and I, I couldn't understand if it was a lesson or... Uh, what really happened, and uh, I don't know. Maybe you have some thoughts about that experience. Yeah. Probably, I'd put that in the dream category. Although dreams and out of body can get pretty close sometimes. It just depends on you know details. There's not a you know the out of body is more of an of an aware thing in a dream, but often you'll get a dream dream will be given to you see dreams aren't always and this is where the where the where it seems like an out of body but it seems like a dream sometimes your dreams aren't just something that you create out of your own experience but it's it's a packet of information that's given to you very much like a a video game you know like a a one on a one on one uh uh, or a single player virtual reality game and a situation will be given to you 
And now you have to do something. In this case, it was save the family. You have to, you know, you have to somehow intervene. And what are you going to do? How are you going to do that? And typically there's a lesson there. There's a lesson to learn. Maybe the lesson, you know, was in, in uh, just learning that there are some things that you can't change. But you're not, you're not in charge of the world. And sometimes things will happen and you uh, can't change them. There's nothing really that you can do about it. There's no way for you to fix it and to accept those things. That could have been a lesson, or it could have been that you needed to be more creative in the way you protected them. You know, maybe not just telling them. Maybe you should not have gone to the neighbor. You should have stayed there. See, I don't know. It depends on the situation, what the, what the lesson was, what was being taught. But the system will often give us these single-player games, if you like, that we're supposed to figure out what is the right approach. What should I be doing? How should have I, you know, how should I have approached this? What was the point? And if you don't get it, they'll give you another one. It'll be a little different, <clears throat> but it'll be a similar kind of thing. And if you don't get that, they'll give you something that's similar, but a little different scenario. And perhaps, you know, you'll, you'll notice that you have a lot of scenarios in your dreams with a theme, a theme running behind them. And in that case, it's just a lesson. You're in school. The system's giving you a, you know, giving you a virtuality lesson and seeing how you make the choices and why you make the choices. So now we talk about that and say, well, how's that different than an out-of-body? Well, an out-of-body is very much like a single-player game where you're out. The, the game is called exploring, and you're out just exploring and doing things, and the system is is uh, providing you with a data stream. So you see, in that sense, what's the difference? In the out-of-body or in this dream, you're receiving data and you are making choices in that data. So they can be very, very similar. Now, all dreams aren't like that. Some dreams are just out of your own head, out of your own experience. Some dreams you know, are, are not necessarily lessons. They're just experiences, but a lot of dreams are lessons. And in which case they are very similar to out of body lessons, out of body experiences. Depends really, I guess, on where the data stream comes from. You know, if it comes from yourself, then it's probably, you know, we call that a dream. If it comes from the system, then we can call that an out of body. And that's not necessarily that obvious of where the data comes from. Matter of fact, it's always not obvious. So I don't know. You just have to look at that and feel about it. Don't try to think your way through it. Feel it. What do you think you should have done? Or play through it different ways. Okay. That time I did it this way. Next time... I'm just going to realize that that's something that really I can't change. And I'll just let it go. And the next time, I won't go to a neighbor's. I'll stay there because I feel this impending thing and I want to, you know, protect them.
And you can run through it in different ways until you find out what the what the lesson is. Okay, thank you. All right, Gary, please go ahead with your questions. Hi, Tom. Uh, I'd like to ask you about imagination and visualization. Uh, I watched a video discussing whether we all have what is common refer commonly referred to as a mind's eye. And it appears to have been recognized through various scientific experiments that some people apparently do not have the ability to visualize. And it has been given the name aphantasia or aphantasia. I'm not sure whether this is true or not, but it certainly got me thinking deeply about my own experience of trying to visualize something. In the comments section below the video, there were literally hundreds of people trying to describe how they experienced visualization, and it was clear that it was falling into two categories. Those that could see an image in the way that we see in this physical world, but in a more cinematic and rather more hazy and low resolution way, and those that didn't see anything at all, and yet still felt as if they were imagining something. However, they were struggling to put it into words, what the something is, in a way that the very visually oriented people could understand. Uh, when you are giving workshops, the ability to visualize is important for the exercises in healing and remote viewing. And you take people quite rapidly through some sample exercises to prove to them that they too can visualize. I followed one of these sessions and at the time concluded that, yes, I could imagine seeing myself riding an elephant and then I could imagine myself being on the elephant and seeing the back of its ears, and even though I had never actually ridden an elephant. It seemed possible in this thing I call my imagination, but rather like the second category of those people I just mentioned, I don't see an image at all. It's not a question of high res or low res, it's just no res blackness. At the same time, it is paradoxical because when I remember a person, for example, I can recall their face in my memory, even though I'm not seeing an image of them as if I was looking at a low resolution photograph. I can't really understand or put into words what it is I am imagining or sort of visualizing. For example, I can close my eyes now and although in the darkness, I can remember your face and I know what it will look like when I open my eyes again. I can't see it in even the most vague way. I just know that I remember it. It's almost as if the image of Tom Campbell is being constructed in my mind to the point that I know it is you and that I'm remembering you accurate, accurately, but at the same time, I'm not seeing a visual image. It's more like an idea of you, some kind of mental construct. And then I got to thinking about the children who see without eyes that appeared in the superhuman documentary. Obviously, they really are seeing something behind the blindfold to the point that they can read a line from a book or even play a game of air hockey. And then I thought about your visits to other reality frames where, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it appears that you can see the world around you as clearly as you can see this world here. When I meditate, I often set the in intention to receive from the LCS a visual data stream for something that I have never seen before so that I can be sure that it is coming from outside of me and not just a mental construct from my imagination. But I never get anything other than blackness. Uh, so can you shed any light on these differences in what we describe as imagination or visualization? Because when we really focus on it, 
the mind's eye would appear not to be what we all commonly accept it to be. Okay, yeah, I can uh, maybe clear some of that up for you. And that is, you are consciousness, and you are getting a data stream. And then you interpret that data stream. You can interpret that data stream in terms of pictures, seeing, or you can interpret that data stream in terms of feeling, or you can interpret it in terms of just knowing. There's different ways that you interpret the data. And, you know, they have this, this um, oh, I can't remember the name of it, this idea that there are some people who are visual, some people are more auditory, some people are more tactile, and they break it into groups basically centered around each sense. Well, people interpret things in terms of their sensual data. Okay, when you get something in a when you get a, a stream of information, you know, you, you get a data stream, you interpret it, you will interpret it in terms of sense data. You interpret it in terms of knowing. So it's just an individual interpretation process. And some people do it one way and some people do it another. You know, so it's it's not that you don't interpret the data. You choose not to interpret the data in terms of vision. You interpret the data in terms of knowing or in terms of feeling. I've had people... Um, tell me that they don't visualize. So I'm asking them, you know, you know, they're, they're going out, they're supposed to see something. You know, it's in one of my exercises, you know, go out and tell me what you see. And they say, well, I don't visualize. And I'd say, yeah, well, just tell me what you get then. And surprisingly, these people who cannot visualize will come back with an immense amount of detail about what they encountered. Just like you say, you can tell it's me, you know, when you look at me, it's, you know, it's me, it's not somebody else. But they'll come back and they'll say, okay, uh, let's see, there was a red fire truck and it was parked in front of a brick house and there were a lot of people running around and all the firemen, you know, were wearing yellow coats and blue hats and they go through all of this amazing, in my mind, visual detail Yet in their mind, they didn't see anything, but it felt that way. And as they interpreted into language, to me, it seemed very visual. Now that's more exceptional. You know, it's not everybody does that, but I think it's just your interpretation style. It's just the way you interpret things into language. And if you interpreted things in language visually, well, you'd come out with different things. You know, you'd, you'd see pictures and you'd interpret it. I see this and I see this other thing. But when you do it in feeling and in just knowing, then it comes out differently. So the people who do things in the feeling space, they tend to have more trouble describing what it is they encountered to other people the people who who do the data in terms of a visual space they have a much easier time because they can describe it visually it's hard to describe it feelingly 
You know, it's just a tougher thing to do. But it doesn't mean that you didn't get the information. You've got the information and you're processing it, but you're just processing it differently. So I don't think it's that one's better or worse than the other. They're just different. And they give you different perspectives. I suspect that there are things that you are able to get, that you're able to, you know, what, determine from the information you get that other people do not, that people who interpret visually miss. You probably pick up details of feeling, of context, of color, of ambience, of, you know, all those kinds of things, mood. And people who just see things miss all that stuff. But you don't. So it's, like I say, one's not necessarily better or worse. It's just a style of interpreting the data. Uh, exactly just... why, you know, why you would have one style and somebody else would have something different, I have no idea. You know, it could be a rule set thing, which has to do with, uh, you know, biochemistry. You know, biochemistry is part of the rule set. Uh, you know, it could be that, just the way the, the uh, visual part of your brain, you know, functions or doesn't function, or the feeling part of your brain and how that happens. And it may be a rule set issue because of the way the, your uh, avatar developed according to the rule set, then it gives it maybe different perspectives on things. So it might be, you know, it might have a, a, a rule set basis. Or I've, wor just... I've wondered whether that might be the case, that, uh, if it's a rule set thing, because I have this sort of real sort of desire to see something and I'm always disappointed, you know, I just never get to see anything and it just seems like such a letdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, focus on the other things that you get. Like I say, the, the non-visual things. You know, in any any situation, there's a lot of non-visual stuff as well. And I don't know, I guess it would just be interesting to see, given a, given a situation, what it is you come away with. If you and, and somebody else both spend one minute standing in the center of a particular room, and then you come out and you're asked to describe it, how do you do that? You know, what's the difference between you and that other person? Does that other person say, oh, the drapes were blue with little yellow things on them and this and that? Or do you say, well, it was a warm and very pleasant room. I, I thought it was inviting and, and uh, you know, interesting. I don't know, but I suspect some studies could be done to see the differences in how we perceive things. And yeah, it could be a rule set, could be a rule set issue because, like you say, they're definitely a pretty large number of people that are the way you are. And there's another pretty large group of people that are the way, you know, I am, which I'm very visual. So because that's true, then I would guess it's rule set based because there's only a certain number of ways that the rule set can solve a problem. Right. Okay. Well, the, uh, my second question is kind of uh, very related to the first and, and related to what you've just said. So, I'll, I'll still read it though. <clears throat> you had an out-of-body experience together with Dennis Menerick, uh, but unfortunately that tape cannot be found. And, and although I of course trust your honesty and integrity in how you relate that story, 
many people will understandably dismiss it, particularly as that evidence no longer exists. So I was going to ask you if you thought it would be interesting and valuable to conduct that experiment again in exactly the same way that Bob Monroe set it up. Personally, I would find that to be very powerful evidence that out-of-body experiences are a real thing. I know you always answer such questions with, if it is not your experience, it is not your truth. And whilst I agree with the obvious truth of that, I would also say that for me, such an experiment would be rather like watching those children who see without eyes from the superhuman documentary. It is impossible to deny the reality of their ability. Any doubting Thomas could try those blindfolds for themselves, give the mask to one of the children and then provide a test of their own so that they knew it was not a trick or a rehearsed feat of memory. Uh, for me, the air hockey game is perhaps the most incredible thing that they do. And for the average person, I am sure things like this are far more meaningful and accessible than, for example, the highly detailed physics of your double slit experiments. Though, needless to say, that is not to underestimate the importance of those experiments in the bigger picture. But then in the recent released Q&A video, in answering a question about the relativity of time, you mentioned that you had gone to a different reality frame and then casually dropped in that Donna had gone with you. So it appears that although not done as a formal experiment, this is something that you still do. I know you're not in business with Tom's guided tours of the non-physical, but I am wondering what are the entry requirements for a real journey into other reality frames as a guest of Tom Campbell? And also, of course, uh, Donna, how would you describe your experience of that adventure? Okay, I will start and let Donna uh, say what she <laughs> wishes to say. But yes, you know, I, you're right. You know, I try to avoid doing that sorts of things, and there's there's several reasons why. Um, and why I happen to mention that offhand, it's just, you know, that was a slip, I guess. It, uh, it just came out. I usually don't say things like that. But it was a little different with Dennis. Dennis and I met above the lab and then went with Donna. She asked me to come pick her up. So it wasn't that she went out of body and I met her out of body. I came and got her and and uh, took her with me. So it was that kind of a thing. And no, there is no line to get in to you know to go on you know, <laughs> to go on that that kind of an experience. I basically found that most of the time those experiences aren't uh, aren't as good as if you can do it on your own. You know, when somebody comes takes you out of body, it's a lot sketchier. You don't have as much uh, clarity and so on because. Yes, you get pieces of it. You get bits and pieces all the way. It's sort of like, uh, you know, having the same experience, but seeing it through a veil, you know, kind of thing. It's, it's not as clear or as much fun when, when somebody does that. So in any case, there's, there's several reasons why. One, that if I do those kinds of experiments, you know, to prove things, then that tends to make me special tends to make me somebody who has special talents and skills it tends to to make mbt 
more of a, it's about Tom. You know, I don't want to create a personality cult and I don't want it to be about Tom. I really want it to be about, you know, everybody else. It's, it's about the ideas, the concepts. I'm the messenger. I'm not particularly important here. And I know that in these sorts of things, even if you say that to people, that doesn't work. It ends up being, you know, a personality thing. It's about the individual and people cluster around an individual rather than the concepts. And it becomes what they call a personality cult sort of thing. So I'm, I like to sneak out the back on that and keep a low profile as possible on things that are amazing or, or different than usual. So that's one of my, one of my reasons because I don't want it to be about being special. I don't want it about, you know, Oh, he was born that way or, Oh, he's had a whole lot of incarnations and does this, but you know, all of those are good reasons why a person says, well, I can't do that. And I don't want to give that impression. Everybody can do that. They just need to, to work at it. You know, over over time, I don't want to make the impression that it's only special people can do that or do that well. Well, so that's well, I'm, one... sure, I'm sure you can understand from what I said previously that for somebody who yeah. can't visualize another reality frame, the thought that somebody might be able to actually take you there yeah. <laughs> and say, "Here it is," yes. is kind yes. of exciting. Yeah, that's very appealing to an awful lot of people, which is why I try not to mention things like that because I know I'll get, you know, a hundred thousand requests. You know, do me, do me, but I, uh, I don't want to go there. But I do see your point. But now, when it comes to when it comes to say doing experiments, you know, to show people that this is real, that really doesn't work. The people who are convinced are the people who are really open-minded, open to it, and kind of give it a sense of reality to begin with. You know, there's a lot of people that watch those kids and said, oh, that was all, you know, that was all uh, made up. You know, those kids really could see, and they were doing this and that, you know. So the people who are close-minded to this sort of thing, it's not going to affect them any. They're not going to say, oh, well, look at that evidence, because they can always say the evidence was rigged. The whole thing was, you know, was choreographed. Everybody that did it was in on the was in on the, the scam. And you can't convince people of that. So it doesn't really convince anybody. All it does is gives the people who already think it's a neat idea and have a positive attitude toward it. And they go, oh, yeah, look at that. You know, but it doesn't change minds. It's not really that that helpful to do that. There's, you know, it's like there's there's uh, literally you know thousands of hours of remote viewing and people teaching remote viewing and and uh, you know remote viewers doing their work, and yet probably uh, the majority of the population would deny that anybody has ever remote viewed anything, See, even though. So examples aren't the thing, even though there's tons of examples out there, even though you could go join a course and learn how to do it yourself. For most people, it just doesn't happen. And for probably 90% of the scientists would tell you it's impossible. It doesn't happen, can't happen. That's why it doesn't happen, because it can happen. 
you see, because it doesn't fit within their belief system. So doing demonstrations is not very valuable in the long term, and it creates a lot of attention and a lot of focus on the person doing you know, doing the demonstration, it becomes, you know, that's a weird person that does these weird things. So I I try not to go there. And the, my last reason for not wanting to go there is that at this point, I really would like to get the, the scientists to come along. I'd like to be convincing to those people, which means I have to be a little careful about my image as, you know, Mr. Out of Body or Mr. Woo Woo or that sort of thing. <laughs> Because that is not going to help the scientists take it seriously. So I'm trying to be a serious scientist, you know, in the eyes of the scientists. But I also like to tell the truth and and talk about the larger reality, too. But so I have a, you know, I have an image issue here. You know, I I can't push the woo-woo, but so far before the science community won't even listen. As soon as they hear my name, they turn off that channel. So I try to keep a low profile for that reason as well. So the scientists will listen, at least, that uh, they can take it seriously. So that's a that's kind of a fine line I have to I have to walk. So I I tend to underplay the paranormal, uh, except when I'm talking to a group of people who are very positive about paranormal things and then i talk a little more to that group but you know i i you know you can't have your cake and eat it too (laughs) you can't be all scientists you know and not be a materialist because it shows so anyway that's kind of why i don't i don't do those those sorts of uh those sorts of demonstrations and i try to shy away from that sort of thing it's why i don't write a book like bob monroe's you know my adventures in the non-physical that book would sell probably a thousand times more than my big toe. There's, you know, millions of people interested in reading books about, you know, adventures in the non-physical, but there's not that many who are want to go through a, you know, a, what, eight, 900 pages of, of nature of reality. You know, that, that's only a very small minority of people who are willing to do that. But I don't write that kind of book because I don't really think in the long term it is good for anything other than developing revenue. You know, it's not really going to help people grow up. May open a few minds, maybe, but it won't help people grow up, which is the main thing. Does Donna want to describe what how it was for her <laughs> or not? Well, that was 13 years ago, Gary. Um, <laughs> And it's funny, but I can't remember, you know, last week. But those kinds of things are are clear. However, Tom was right that when you take someone, this was this was something I thought would be a good experiment, and I hadn't thought about it. Um, you know, with my with my legal background, I'm thinking I hadn't thought about it for years that this is evidential. Um. What I described to Tom that I had seen uh, was it was a particularly dramatic scene, so it was obviously clearer. One, I was locked in. 
I was not able to to get out of this state, but I, I wasn't panicking. You know, with, with a dream, you can you can switch, you can you can move out. We were locked into this particular one because of the particular circumstances that were going on. But I had sent Tom a little attachment of a description of what I observed, what it looked like, what what people look like, and and just as details of of what I had observed, and he and he um, said that that was correct. So that that right there that I sent, I sent him a description of it is almost like their the out of body thing that he and Dennis did because um, they weren't aware of each other's uh, descriptions or what was going on until Bob Monroe played the tapes. But uh, So I had sent the description before Tom let me know what the events were. Um, but he is right in that everyone can achieve this. It, it does take a little bit of interpretation to know where you are. But it's more clear when you do this on your own. And I have dropped into... I don't think I told them, Tom this. I have dropped into an an alternate reality, and I'm saying alternate reality because that's my interpretation. And it was extremely clear. So on my own, it was more clear. And I don't know for the reason that was. Perhaps it was a lot of years later. Um, but I was able to see faces and outfits and determine through an interpretation that this was a an alternate reality. It wasn't here. Um, I was clearly again intruding on a some sort of special event because um, turning very very closely to me was someone I, I just mentally asked a question who's the beautiful lady in that outfit over there and I'm getting a stern look like what are you doing here so those things, you know they just don't want me there I, I haven't been there since probably won't go back but anyway it's you know it's your own interpretations these are data yeah. streams like as tom says yeah what what donna got in this was mainly architectural elements you know big elements like had she been given a you know had she done like remote viewers do written down you know what were the architectural mm -hmm. elements and what was the what was the mood and was it big yeah. or large and so on she would have gotten a pretty high score as a remote viewer she picked up a lot of the of the basic elements, but what she missed was all the detail and how all those elements, you know, were interactive with each other. She she missed a lot of that, so she got part of the experience, but not, uh, you know, not not all of it. Right. Yeah. And I've had, that's, that's I've, generally, right. that's the way it is when you when when you take somebody else out of body. It's like that. I've only had one other case that was really different where they got the experience very clearly and that was a, a lady one time asked me to uh to do that take her out of body and and i thought well this would be interesting i didn't want to do anything long because i was doing something else at the time so i just grabbed hold of her and took her about a thousand feet up straight up in the air just to get a view you know that way she could see a view of you know you know an aerial view of that area, because I thought, well, that would be interesting. You know, that would be something to be evidential that you could see things and so on. And um, what happened is that uh, 
she suddenly found herself a thousand feet in the air with nothing underneath of her, and she started screaming is what happened. So that didn't work out very well. <laughs> Scared her half to death. So it's not something that, <laughs> that I think is a good idea for the most part. Okay. Thank you both very much. Carolyn has a question, but her audio is not working, and she's asked me to ask it for her. Uh, her question is, sometimes women act entitled. They want their men to do something to or for them. How should a man deal with that? Should the man meet their needs and give them what they ask for in order to relax them and make them happy? Well, Caroline, that depends on the situation. But, well, let's run over the, the, the possibilities. Okay. Uh, if what the lady is asking for, what she'd like you to do with or for her, is something that would be hurtful to her or others, would be damaging in some way, or would cause some kind of serious problem, then, of course, the answer would be to talk about it and if she still wanted you to do that, maybe the answer would be no, because then you would have a kind of the low entropy decision in that case would be, I don't think so, I can't participate in that. But if it was not something like that, if it was something that uh, really didn't have a downside other than maybe you were didn't want to bother with it or it wasn't something you would have chosen to do, and you think that it would make her happy and would be a very positive thing to do, then yes, you should do whatever it is she asks or whatever it is she, you know, she'd like you to do. In other words, love is about other. It's not about you. It's about other. Now, that doesn't mean you have to do something horrible. It doesn't mean that uh, you, know, you can't talk about it and say, well, you know, I'd be glad to do that, but right now I'm in the middle of this or that, and... How about right after, you know, how about in an hour or how about 10 minutes or maybe tomorrow? You know, maybe you could negotiate if it was uh, not something you wanted to do just then. But in the bigger picture, the answer to that is yes, you should do what she asks. Your, your uh, significant others would says, oh, I'd really like it if you paint the bedroom purple. Just a nice lavender. That would be really, really nice. I've always wanted a lavender bedroom. And you look around and you say, well, there's nothing wrong with the paint. The paint is perfectly good. We just painted it, you know, three years ago. And uh, it's white, but it's, it's plain and really lavender. <clears throat> well, instead, of course, you should paint it lavender because you can always paint it white again if you want. You can paint it lavender because that would make her happy. But the way to do that is to paint it with her. Make it a together thing that the two of you work together, cooperate, and make it a, you know, a duo paint job. It would be fun. And the fact that you have made her happy will make your relationship so much better. So the idea of, well, we don't need it. It's not practical. I don't see the point or the need for it. Therefore, no, I don't want to do it. That's making it all about you. 
not about her. It doesn't matter whether it's practical. It doesn't matter whether it's necessary. It matters whether or not it's something you could do easily and something she wants. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be rational. It just has to be you giving her something because she wants it just for that reason, none other. So in general, I'd say the answer is yes. Uh, as you say, uh, you know, the man would meet her needs and give them what they ask for. Yes, if you can, if that's if that's possible. And if it's inconvenient for you or is unnecessary, well, that's your problem. Deal with that. Make her happy. Because love is about giving. It's not about making things the least cost or the most efficient. It's inefficient to paint a room that already has good paint on it. A waste of time and money and, and, and whatever. You know, well, that's mostly a masculine attitude. Uh, we're very practical about things like that. But if it's not about you and it's about her, then, of course, do it whenever you can, as often as you can. Vinicius has a follow-up question he'd like to ask. Yeah, uh, just just a short follow-up. Like, what does include in damaging oneself? Does, does pleasing the ego counts? Like, the person needs some sort of, like, egotistical need accounted for? Does that count? Or what's the line? Or, or No, no, that's, that doesn't count. That's all about you still. I mean, if there's just something that would just create trouble, you know? Oh, let's go... Uh, you know, grab uh, 10 rolls of toilet paper and and roll our neighbor's house, you know, well, then you'd probably say, no, bad idea. Because that is annoying to somebody else. No, I don't mean that it's annoying to you because, you know, you don't feel like painting the house. And besides, the paint's good. That's just your ego. No, your stuff, you just need to let go of. It's not about you. But if there is some reason that it isn't a good choice, Oh, well, we could go take a drive right now, but the odor, the roads are all very icy. There's icy patches all over the roads, and I don't think this would be a good time for that. But as soon as the ice clears, sure, I'd be glad to take you for a ride to see that new housing development down uh, you know, on the other side of town and, and uh, take a look at that. So those sorts of things. You have to not just do whatever she wants whenever she wants it, if it's actually not a good idea. But the, whether it's a good idea or not should have nothing to do with your ego. See, <laughs> so that's the thing. It's not your ego that gets to decide whether it's a good idea or not. It's her no, no. health and safety. Sorry, I, I meant the, uh, the other person's ego. Like if, if, if you see if it's something like, like a need or something, does that include in damaging if you're giving something that the person is needing? and then might be damaging to them because they should kind of like deal with that. That's what I meant. Sorry. Well, then you'd have to decide whether you're going to be an enabler or not of something that was damaging, right? When the alcoholic says, Hey, could you give me some money for a bottle of wine? You know, well, if you always give them money, then you're an enabler of bad and destructive behavior. You're an enabler of high interest behavior. But if the, if the, that is not a good thing to support, 
But that's pretty clear, enabling, you know, high entropy, damaging behavior. But if it's just feeding an ego, oh, I'd really like it to be purple because I just think purple would be nice and it's what I've always wanted, so that's what I want. That's just ego. Sure, sweetheart, purple it is. You pick the paint out and we'll paint it together. So if it's just a matter of her ego needs and her wants, as long as that doesn't lead to some high entropy, you know, dysfunctional situation, then sure, serve her needs, her wants, her desires, even if it's just from her ego. Absolutely. And of course, the same works the other way around. You know, if if there's the man and he says, darling, I'd like you to come and, uh, you know, do this or that with me. Or, and if she can, she should say yes, of course, because love is about giving. So it's not just one way, you know, that works both ways. Love is about caring and giving. And even if it just is his ego, that's okay. Give him what he wants if you can. And it's not you enabling destructive behavior. But see, what we do is we take our own viewpoint of things, like there's no point in painting a house that's already painted. You know, we take our viewpoint of that and we say that's right and that's correct. And we force that on other people. See, that's the problem where we see our, our, our ego is right and other person's egos are wrong. So then we, we have a fight about it and her ego says, I want purple. And his ego, ego says that's not efficient. It's not, you know, it's a waste of time and energy. The room already is painted adequately. Well, it's not about adequate. It's about her want. Well, that doesn't hurt anything. There's not going to be any, any, uh, you know, big negative downside to that. You're just going to have to spend some time painting a room. Yeah. Don't let your own needs become the right way. Tom Campbell here. INMBT Events, hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.